0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Michelle Dean, a journalist and critic and the author of the new book, Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. Sharp examines the lives of 10 women of the 20th century. Susan Sontag, Pauline Kael, Dorothy Parker, Joan Didion, Nora Ephron, Renata Alder, excuse me, Renata Adler, I can't speak, Rebecca West, Hannah Arendt, Mary McCarthy, and Janet Malcolm and focuses on the impact they made on American culture, politics, and journalism. The book functions as both a history of 20th century intellectual life through the distinct prisms of the book's subjects, and also raises questions about the way society views women in public life then and today. Michelle Dean joins me from Los Angeles, where I guess she is based. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Thanks for being here.
1: No problem. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, so I wanted to talk about your book, which I just finished. And um, the first question I had for you is, Ten subjects is a lot for a book. You often see these group biographies. they are about two or three people, sometimes four, maybe even five. But this is about ten. What made you want to do a biography with ten people and sort of group them together in this way?
1: Well— the first reason is probably naivete about how much uh, this is my first book um and i think i i sort of bit off um a large ambitious chunk and then realized like oh i picked 10 people that's a lot um but also because you know part of the point of the book is to demonstrate that there's this sort of heritage of this kind of woman critic slash journalist in the American literary tradition. And in order to demonstrate that, it's true that if it was just one, two or three people, um, it wouldn't be much of a tradition, it would be like a commonality. And in order to say that it was was something stronger than that, like a, a sort of type that came down all the way through the 20th century, then I really kind of needed 10 people. And there are actually more people who could have been in the book who sort of got dropped. But yeah.
0: You write in the book early on at one point, I'll just read what you wrote. These women were all oppositional spirits, and they tended not to like being grouped together. So it seems like the book is sort of in some ways a challenge to that since sort of by definition, you are grouping them together.
1: Yes. I mean, so first of all, I am grouping them together. And it did sometimes occur to me that I could end up haunted by some ghosts here of people who are very angry with me um, for for having done it. Yes. That's what I was hinting at. Yeah. Yeah. There is a danger always of flattening individuality when you write the kind of book like this, which tries to make, you know, a series of claims about somebody's writing. And, and in particular, I'm going through m- most of these women's whole careers um, in which they sometimes contradicted themselves, um, particularly on the subject of their com- commonality as women writers or, um, or their relationship to feminism generally, which would have made like a greater claim on them as, as sort of representative of their sex um, rather than simply writers with individual voices. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a tension that I worried about. And it is a tension that kind of drives the book, um, in that I feel like the book is uh, elucidating a paradox that even as these women were constantly resisting the idea that they were, you know, women writers first, um, in some way, um, or that they should be identified, shouldn't be identified as such. They still managed to sort of carve out a place for a particular kind of woman in public life um, that ended up being extremely valuable. And I kind of hate this word mostly because it's become jargon now because it's a buzzword, but um, somewhat empowering for other women um, to see them engaging um, at such a high level. And that had this sort of paradoxical feminist effect, even as some of these women would have denied very heavily that they were feminists
0: yeah I want to talk more about feminism, but first, for people who haven't read the book, can you talk about a little bit what you mean by sharp or sharpness, which is a quality that you keep coming back to in the book and you you kind of unite the women under this uh, rubric, um, if that's the word I'm looking for what, what exactly do you mean by sharpness?
1: Well, I mean a number of things primarily, I do mean a certain kind of um, writing style or um or effect of these women's writing in that it was seen often as un like quite uh, exceptionally insightful or um, sort of cutting through nonsense or in some way saying something that hadn't been said before. But on the other hand, it was also kind of seen as, for lack of a better word, mean um, and cutting um, to elaborate the sharp metaphor a little bit. And I can get Too elaborating of the metaphor in places, but um, but the idea is sort of that it is both a style and an effect of that is attributed to women in public life. That you have these moments both of extraordinary insight and then of extraordinary pushback, um, because the way that people relate to women with say a strong opinion or a strong position on something, the way that society relates to them as we learn over and over again, it seems in the course of American history, it's tricky. Um, The women both get venerated for it and then also torn down for their powers of sharpness, so to speak.
0: So the book kind of goes from early on in the 20th century to the end of the 20th century. And I guess it starts with Dorothy Parker and then Janet Malcolm, I think, is the last one. Yeah. I guess what, what I'm wondering is how do you think sharpness changed or our idea of sharpness, especially coming from a woman, changed between, say, 1930 and 2000?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I stop the book once we get to third wave feminism because it seems to me like that. Third wave feminism arrived in a different cultural context than these women had been writing in. And this, this notion of the exceptional woman, um, who was the only woman who was going to be allowed at the table of intellectualism or journalism or criticism, whatever you want to call it, um, sort of started to recede um, in the 1990s. Um, and you started to have a lot more women public intellectuals and a lot more women speakers and a lot less of this attribution of, exception, of exceptionalism to women who managed to do this. But I don't know that sharpness changed exactly in part because I think it's, you know, it's sort of like a multiplicitous phenomenon. Um, sometimes it worked very well for these women. Sometimes they were praised for it and sometimes they weren't. And that, that goes for everyone from Parker all the way through Malcolm. I'm not sure that it evolved much, but I do think that we got more and more used to this figure in public life of this woman who happened to be very cutting, but also very incisive and that yes, by the time we get to to the end of the twentieth century, this is an archetype that the culture is is quite a bit more comfortable with
0: so can you talk a little bit about Dorothy Parker, especially for people who haven't who haven't read much about her, and why you wanted to start the book with her, what it was about her that felt like a good jumping off point
1: Well, you know she was obviously very um caustic, but also very smart. Um, and it's, it's interesting, because her literary reputation keeps changing and evolving. Um, even when she was alive, the same, the same thing happened. At first, she was greeted as brilliant, and then she was greeted as, as, as not as brilliant as she should have been and not living up to her potential. And it sort of went back and forth her whole life. Um, I think Dorothy Parker did sort of inaugurate the type for whatever reason. And well, it's not even for whatever reason. In the 1920s, writers became celebrities in a way that they almost never would be again um, in 20th century culture. Um, and she happened to be the woman or one of the main women who was elevated by that phenomenon. Um, and it's funny because she was such a, um, she, she tended to, to write so directly um, and so again, at the risk of being totally obsessed with my own metaphor, um, cuttingly, that people couldn't ignore what she had to say. Um, even though, you know, sometimes, and there's a certain set of literary criticism that, or, uh, that can maintains that Parker was mostly focusing on trivialities. I don't really agree with that. But even when she spoke on trivialities, they ended up being things that we ended up remembering.
0: It feels like some people sort of one critique of Parker that people make that sort of there was something frivolous about her that she was not writing, as you say, on serious subjects. Is that something that you think that the women that you're writing about and, and even women writing today are aware is thrown at them more frequently than at men who are writing? And, and how much were the people in the book conscious of the fact that that was a critique that people made of, of women writers?
1: I think they all knew it. I mean, I think I think it was inescapable basically. Um it and it's been an inescapable phenomenon even now. Um it feels like things are opening up now a little bit for it. But but yeah, even, you know, so Rebecca West also would write sometimes about how you know how frustrating it was that like women didn't get to speak exactly to their own sexual preferences um in most of the literature of the day where meanwhile like somebody like hg wells is just um spreading as she once called it his cold clotted cream type sexuality um all over his novels and then um you know even somebody like mary mccarthy who is one of the the people in the book who was more resistant to calling herself a feminist or whatever um you know she write she wrote an in, in an introduction to her theater criticism about about how um, she always felt she never sort of set out to become a theater critic for Partisan Review. Um, but she, you know, she knew that when they gave her that that post at Partisan Review, they did it largely because they saw her um, meaning they meaning the editors they saw her as basically another editor's girlfriend and they thought of the theater as not a very important subject. Um, And so they could just give it to her to do um, without much risk to the integrity of the institution or what have you, um, or the seriousness of partisan reviews. So, so I think they all knew it in one way or another. I mean, even Hannah Arendt recently, um, I think she sort of knew, although she tended to buy a little more the idea that some things were serious and not serious. Um, Although, actually, I think all the women writers in the book also bought that that, um, dichotomy at one point or another.
0: The, the one person in your book that I think if, if people just reading the list of names might be somewhat surprised to see in there is Nora Ephron, who I think a lot of people think as a very brilliant humorist and screenwriter above all else, or at least in, in sort of the popular conception. Why, why did you want to include her and, and how do you think she fits in with the group?
1: actually nora was kind of in many ways the the seed of the book um in that i too thought of her that way as mostly a, a humorist and a and a film director of and please forgive me of not necessarily always very good romantic comedies No, um, come on you know i and i i should say here that like i'm canadian and i grew up there, and my cultural touchstones are different. So I don't even think I was very aware that she had written any journalism at all. Until a couple years before she died, somebody gave me a copy of one of her first books, which is called Crazy Salad. And I read it. And it was sort of a revelation to me. um, Because I found, frankly, Nora's writing very serious, um, at the risk of reinforcing the dichotomy we were just talking about. I mean, her approach was very much... um, kind of intellectual, which, again, is not something that I had associated her with prior to that. And that exactly that um, revelation made me wonder, like, what else am I missing about the history of women writers in the 20th century? Like, I had no idea that she had been something of a celebrity journalist in her time. Um, And it seemed to me that those that that aspect of her had sort of been buried behind yeah. Behind this focus on her, the, the sort of trivialities of her later work or what we're seeing as the trivialities of her later work. She really kind of belongs in the book, though, because in many ways she was an heir to Parker, sort of, you know, Parker refigured through a Hollywood childhood and um, second wave feminism, but still, you know, very much writing in the same vein and in the same sort of caustic tone.
0: We'll get back to my conversation with Michelle Dean right after this. After having now finished the book and read all 10 of these women, I assume, uh, spent a lot of time reading all 10 of these women, were there any that they're writing that you feel has aged particularly well or has not aged particularly well? Did did your opinion of any of them as writers kind of go up or down um, in a way that was different than you expected going in and why?
1: You know, I tend to be more of like a biographical critic and mostly because actually my temperament is of a historian and journalist and not so much of a critic. So for me, I wasn't usually reading them to evaluate them. It's funny, though, because so Mary McCarthy, for example, who was more famous in her own day, but is probably now only remembered for her fight with Lillian Hellman um, about what a liar Lillian Hellman was, which I can now say without worrying that Lillian Hellman will sue me for um, for defamation. Um, But Mary McCarthy had a revival a few years ago, mostly because actually the group showed up on Mad Men. Um, Betty's reading it in the bath at some point. And and people started to get interested in the group again, which is a book, a novel, for those of your readers who don't know, is published in 1963 about a group of women sort of coming of age in New York in the 1930s. And it, it sort of inaugurated... I mean, it didn't totally inaugurate, actually, the, the history of, like, young women coming to the city and it becoming, like, a, a storied thing goes back to some books, a book called My Sister Eileen, um, that was actually written in the 1930s or published in the 1920s, sorry. Um, Whoops. But um, but yeah, the group was an interesting historical phenomenon, because it was a very sexually frank book. Um, and it was published in 1963, which was as, you know, the second wave of feminism was starting to gear up, at least at the intellectual end, if not the activist end. So there was this enormous response to that book. But if, if I was going to answer the question, what is Mary McCarthy's best book, I would never say the group, I would say it was The Company She Keeps, which is the book she published earlier, of short stories about also a young woman coming to the city um, and mixing among intellectuals and having ambivalent sexual experiences a la cat person um, that I really wish more people read that book. Um, For me, all of as a historian or as somebody trying to put together this history of these women's writing and the reception to their work, there's always like something interesting about about every text. Um, And it, it left me not judging them solely as is this good or is this bad?
0: You glancingly mentioned when we started about these women's relationship to feminism, and at the end of the book you write, All through this book I have been trying to point out that there is room in this deep ambivalence about and even hostility towards feminism to take away a feminist message. What did interest me going through the book person by person is – is this ambivalence that many of them felt towards how, what we define as feminism? And, and I, I'm wondering if you could talk about, to speak of them as a group, what and you can mention individuals too, where you think this comes from and why it was so potent.
1: Well, so first of all, um, when I say feminism in this connection, I mostly mean movement feminism, for to, so defining it down a little bit in that now that we live in an era of widespread cultural feminism or pop cultural feminism, we don't tend to think of it as like a formal movement in the same way. Um, and it it looked a little bit more formal in these women's times, like there were people who went to feminist meetings, um, you know, and wore feminist buttons in a way that they don't typically do right now. I think that in general, the ambivalence towards feminism is the ambivalence that anybody, any writer, or as I try to politely put it, oppositional spirit, would feel towards social movements w- in that there's always a kind of flattening of self that invo- that is involved in in engaging in political action. And I don't mean that the flattening is permanent. I don't mean that people go into social movements and become zombies. But I mean that... To a certain extent, um, to use a contemporary example, there are days when you just have to put the pussy hat on, even if you don't like the aesthetics of the pussy hat, um, in a movement. That's just the way that social movements work. But, um... But the the activity of writing or speaking in public or being yourself in public is is naturally sort of opposed to that because it might be hard for somebody like one of these women and was often hard for somebody like these women to make a crack um, about the pussy hats of their day um, and and what might bother them about them. Um, it was hard for them to not be forthcoming about that. And so I say ambivalence, because actually, although I am charting women who mostly did not explicitly align themselves with feminism, or um, to the extent that they did often express like frustration or ambivalence about how the movement was shaping up, most of them came around eventually. I mean, Didion is famous for having written a sort of takedown of the movement, which was sort of in the form of a book review of a bunch of different feminist books of the early 1970s. Um, But even she, you know, in an interview not so very long ago, told an interviewer, you know, like, I was documenting a specific moment in time where I felt like that the movement was getting caught up in trivialities about like, who should wash dishes and stuff. And I'm, I'm not sure the movement is there anymore. And I don't think I would say the same thing about it. Or Mary McCarthy, who, who, you know, would do things at the end of her life. Like give a speech where she'd say I'm not a feminist in one breath, and then later say, you know, I guess I'm enough of a feminist to have never liked it when people told me that I wrote like a man. Mm. Right. So I think there was not necessarily hostility to the idea that in the world there are gendered structures of knowledge and power. I mean, I even found like a there it, it, it. sort of popped up on the internet. Um, and I, I'd read it or encountered it before, but just hadn't really thought about it too hard. But it popped up in the internet as a meme lately, this thing where Hannah Arendt um, is giving an interview towards the, the end of her life. And she says, you ask me how, what kind of influence I wish I have. And, you know, if I'm going to speak ironically, I just want to say, I think that's a very masculine question. Men are always looking to influence and I'm looking to understand. And I think it's interesting that she said that, right? Um, in spite of the fact that she was definitely the person most hostile to feminism sort of in the book.
0: Yeah, I think the way you phrase it in the book, I don't want to get this wrong, but you say it's about sisterhood and uh, they were individuals. Yeah. You've read these women a lot more than I have, but I had the I have the vivid memory of reading Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, which is Rebecca West's kind of uh, incredible travelogue through the Balkans between the two world wars. And... They're just there. It's it's this sort of amazing dichotomy, which I think you you capture in in the book about a lot of these women, which is that this kind of incredible um, this incredibly strong personality and this belief that, you know, women should be should be equal and sort of the goals of feminism, but also just constant cracks about women, about the way they look, uh, referring to them by names that we would now uh deem politically incorrect for good reason, and sort of taking shots at kind of the official women's movement of the day. And and sort of that dichotomy, which goes through a thousand page book, is is pretty striking. And um it's it's just a it's a very interesting kind of approach that these women had, or several of them had.
1: Yeah. I mean it's funny because you know like like if I was talking purely in political theory, like I I, I don't want to sound like I'm a total celebration of the individual, but you read a book like Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, and you think there is some value to this individual sensibility. I do think West could sometimes be really hard on people's appearances. Like she tended to be that way overall, when whether she was talking about women or men, frankly, um, but uh, on their personal appearances, she tended to extrapolate a lot from say the shape of their nose. Um, <laughs> although it's kind of fun to just watch her mind sort of ramble over these things. And there is something actually this kind of sort of self-awareness or um, having a little bit of fun um, at the expense of your politics is somehow also politically valuable in a way I I feel like I keep struggling to articulate in these interviews that, you know, feminism would be richer um, for, I think, for um, or or will be richer if it becomes something more of like a Tower of Babel, right? Um, Where, Everybody is just is arguing all the time. I would prefer if the arguments were of, of you know, relative good nature to what they are right now. But um, but there's something valuable in having all these individual sensibilities crop up and sort of amount to feminism in the aggregate, as opposed to just sort of rehearsing rote arguments about, I don't know, about liberation and equality, which are useful. But I think um, but which I think are actually easier to come to in, in the process of us all arguing together
0: it struck me a little bit that what you were saying mirrored uh, in certain ways, maybe, maybe you disagree with this, the way some feminists of kind of, you know, my parents and baby boomer generation have been talking about feminism as they perceive it on social media these days, which they view, again, I'm speaking broadly as kind of flattening and they're not, they're not these sort of Everyone throwing their opinion in the ring and and sort of a flattening of opinion and voices. Do do you think that that's um, – do you see any similarity there? And, and what do you think of – what have you thought of that critique generally?
1: Well, I actually think that critique tends to come from people who don't, like, engage on social media with feminists. In, because I think that in general – I mean – I don't want to I don't want to talk too too much about Katie Roife exactly. But um, but if you read like a piece like that, which is representative, I think, of some of of what you're talking about, um, where she's trying to characterize the Me Too movement. It seemed to me very obvious that she from the piece, not knowing anything necessarily about her, that she had not engaged a lot on social media because there was there was an idea that on social media, there is a party line um, about feminism uh, that is being observed. And in my experience, that is not totally the case. Do I think that that social media discussion about feminism is flattening, though? I do. But I think it's more about the way that social media has completely poisoned our conversational dynamics in society generally, and it is not a problem specific to feminism. Um, I mean, I think that... um, Online feminism has in many ways been great or was great. And I come out of it in some sense. I mean, I'm a person who came to writing and journalism late and I came to it actually through the feminist comment sections, um, among other places. And um, and those were extremely vibrant conversational places. Um, and I think that there is still some of that going on online. And I think, yeah, I, I do think as somebody who engages a lot on social media, I tweet way too much. I do think it poisons conversational dynamics, but I don't, I sort of get frustrated when it, people think it's, it's about feminism going too far. It's about feminism getting caught in a net that everything's getting caught in right now.
0: When you were researching this book and seeing the way that men and society at large responded to these women putting their opinions out there in the world, how do you think that's changed now for female journalists and novelists and writers in the current era? And what's your experience been with that?
1: There are things that are better, like there are more women speaking than ever before. And I think to a certain extent, we have to acknowledge that we have to acknowledge that women are getting a greater um, foothold in the public sphere than they've ever had before. And that's very exciting. And it's great. Um, And it's great that we live in an era where it's possible to discuss these things um, or like, you know, problems like representation or, or, um, you know, or the inability of this country to elect a woman as president. It's, it's great to live in an era where we have those discussions out in the open. But, um, and some of that has been opened up by social media, which was great, um, which allowed like sort of more voices to get into the conversation. But um, on the other hand, social media and the activity, uh, being a woman who writes now means being online mostly. And it also means, therefore, that people can reach you more easily to express their dissent. I mean, another seed of this book was actually years ago. I wrote a review for Slate, actually, of a book called How Should a Person Be by Sheila Hetty. I liked the book. Um, it had been the subject of some criticism that I thought did not get the book. Um, and the the book um one of the conceits of the review was that um serious men did not seem to understand it because there were a lot of male literary critics who wrote about it who seemed to think it was to me they just misread the book not to get too far into the weeds but um i've received some of the only hate mail i've ever received as a journalist about that book review about a literary book um, in that it just seemed to anger a lot of men and I was getting a lot of um, emails from people I remember one of them specifically saying like I think this review is is stupid and by the way my girlfriend thinks so too um, and getting responses like that um, is pretty much a commonality of being a woman speaking in public now they can just get at you so much easier you can't hide um, You you can't get away from them. Um, and that makes it really um, frustrating and chaotic to be a woman who speaks in public. Um, And I'm not sure that we really have figured out how to navigate that yet. I mean, we sometimes talk about it under the rubric of harassment and some of it is harassment. um, But there's also just like a level of it that is so much more um, low lying noise um, and frustration with women who actually say things um, or even just the sound of your voice. I mean, I've gotten that several times that men listen to the sound of my voice somewhere on a Podcast or on TV or whatever, and I get emails of um, women too, and that was co- that was common for the women of the, these eras, but they didn't have to deal with quite so much pushback. That that struck me very strongly.
0: Do you think there's more? I mean, putting aside kind of the people who are harassing or you know people who are super negative um, online or something, do you think there's more kind of mainstream acceptance of women? expressing strong or sharp opinions and, um, for their own sake?
1: There is. Um, I mean, we, we have lots of public figures now we could identify as, as being in this sort of tradition, um, or at least being outspoken women in public. Um, still not enough. I don't think, I mean, there'll be enough when there's been 50% in the public sphere for more than a couple of years, but, um, yeah, there is more widespread acceptance. I mean, um, me to, to the extent that it has been a women led movement. I mean, there have been men also, um, who, who've spoken out about their experiences, but, um, it, it does clear a way. So like, even aside from the, the, the discussion about harassment, there is something about it that says like, we need to reevaluate the way that we listen or don't listen to women, Um, And having that conversation on the table has been useful, even if it doesn't feel like everybody is adjusting to it.
0: Michelle Dean is the author of the new book, Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. Michelle, do you think you can name all 10 of these women without looking uh, at a notepad?
1: Oh, sure. Do you want me to do it?
0: Yeah, do it for the audience.
1: (laughs) Dorothy Parker, Rebecca West, Mary McCarthy, Hannah Arendt, um, Pauline Kael, Susan Sontag, um, Joan Didion, Nora Ephron, Janet Malcolm, and Renata Adler.
0: All right. That was very impressive. The book is available wherever you want to buy books. And Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for the additional help from Erica Moo in Los Angeles. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at at askatslate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me at Twitter at iChotner. Thanks for listening.